You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. If you are not keeping your skills up to date, you're not going to be able to get ahead in whatever job you're in. But I also agree as well that in the future, this idea of getting a formal education either goes away or it probably doesn't, it probably never goes away. But it definitely morphs, and it gets right. to a point where you really do just need to know certain skills. You have to know how to do what you're doing and, and what the next potential job is, either at a different company or at your current company or if you want to start a company. No, it's so true. I guess that's right. You know, I kind of myself always have to keep updated. And how do you see, not just young people, but even people mid-age who are looking to reinvent themselves yeah. and not go into a corporate job every day, how do you see them using LinkedIn to find that passion job or that side totally. hustle or that gig job. So I am so excited to again have Dan Roth, editor-in-chief of one of the largest social media networks, LinkedIn, on the podcast. Dan, how's it going? It's going great. It's great to be back here. I was here, I don't know, it was years ago. Two years ago. You were yeah. one of our first 
guest that we had live. I think I went to LinkedIn and, or we went, no, no, we went, we went to some to studio. studio. Yeah. And uh, I think you were the second guest or third guest I ever had on live. And now I do all the podcasts live and in person. Nice. So, it was the first podcast I ever recorded. So a lot really? of firsts, yeah. How, how many podcasts have you been on since? Have you been cheating it's on been, me? <laughs> it's been in the multiples. So I think three. Three. Yeah. Okay. And you, and you mentioned actually at this, on this very table, you were on Recode with uh, my friend, Peter Kafka. Yeah. Peter's great. Um, so, so there's a couple of things I want to talk about with you, many things, but first I just want to mention, we had here, uh, the other day, Yuval Harari, you know, the author of Sapiens, uh -huh, sure. very smart guy. And he was telling me on the podcast how he doesn't have a phone and he just uses his landline phone in his house. And so Today's the first day of an experiment. Hopefully, I will last more than one day, but I'm going to try for at least a week. I don't have a phone on me. So the only reason I have this computer in front of me actually is because there's some numbers related to LinkedIn and I have a bad memory and, and so on. But uh, Steve, my podcast producer, and Jay, just so you know, I have no phone. You can't get in touch with me if I'm outside the house. <laughs> Speaking of, I probably should turn my phone on airplane mode. So that's just a good reminder. I don't know how you do it without a phone. I can't. Well, I don't know either. It's yeah. it's only nine in the morning or ten in the morning, and this is the You're first day I'm trying this. You know, for people listening, I tell you that James is not shaking. He seems to be okay right now without the phone. So you're doing a great job so far. You know, there's also some research that shows even if your uh, phone is upside down on the table, so you're not looking at it, that there's research that shows that the other, per let's say you're having lunch and your phone is upside down on the table. The other person is not paying attention to you as much. Wow. Um, you have to actually hide the phone, which, which you're doing. So, uh, uh, but I, I've always been aware of that research, but now I decided, you know what? I didn't have social media applications on the phone anyway. I always made it so I would have to at least log on to Google Chrome and then go to social media. But then I figured, you know what? Like right now, I'm doing a podcast, so if someone calls me, there's no reason for me to answer. And there's no social media I'm checking. Uh, like, well, and this is this could segue into to LinkedIn. So I've been a huge fan of LinkedIn from the beginning. Uh, I, I to, to be realistic, I've been I've been a user, a heavy user of Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, more recently Instagram. But LinkedIn has been very good to me. Um, I feel like that's the one place where I could publish a, an in-depth long article and people will read it. Uh, I mean, I've had articles on LinkedIn that have had well over a million views. Uh, you know, I was one year, I was one of LinkedIn's top influencers. Thank you very much. And, uh, uh, I don't know. I really, I really enjoy the, the network and the communities on, on LinkedIn. So since you've last been on, like, I have the numbers on my computer. Why don't you just tell me how many users are on LinkedIn right now? We've got 560 million members around the world. And we uh, we have millions of... Our, the, the area that I focus on is are the articles, the posts, the videos that professionals like you are putting up every day. And we have millions of those a day. Yeah, I read you have like 2 million new posts a day. Yeah. We've got a... It's... And, and I think if you think back to like when you were first starting doing this, it was not a very common thing for people to talk about professional, their professional interests anywhere. You wouldn't discuss what you were doing during the day. Maybe someone would write an op-ed occasionally. But since publishing launched on LinkedIn, and we've done, we've gone through a period where at first you could only write long-form articles, now you do posts and videos, and um, people are, are just photos, and people are trying new ways. But everything on LinkedIn is about the professional workplace. 
and what they're doing and what they're trying to achieve. And I think that the the feeling that you get out of it, and I, I think that why you're why you why you feel comfortable putting things there is that there's a context around what you're doing. When you put up a video or you write an article and you put it on LinkedIn, the only people that are going to see it and comment on it are other people who are also trying to get ahead or thinking about their next move or trying to run a company or trying to build a company or trying to find their side hustle, whatever it is they want to do. And so they're in a frame of mind where they're reading to understand the world around them. And when you post a video up, it's not, you know, you're not competing with crazy viral videos of, you know, kids doing funny things and people getting, you know, hit by footballs or whatever. It's just business-related, professional-related stuff. So the context makes a big difference. And then the other part is that um, there's no anonymity on LinkedIn. So that when you write something, everyone knows who you are. They can go see your professional profile and see where you've been and what you've done. And when they leave comments, their boss sees their comments. And their employees see their comments. Or someone who might want to hire them in the future sees what they want to say. So people tend to be respectful. And I think that's one of the things that I really love when I'm spending my time reading or watching on LinkedIn is that when is that I like going into the comment section and that's pretty rare. Yeah, no, I agree. Like if I write a post almost anywhere else, even my own blog, I'm often a little nervous by going into the comments right. because the reality is nobody likes to see somebody just insult themselves. Right. I mean, usually sometimes it's like on YouTube, I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. But uh, on LinkedIn, it's usually very respectful. Sometimes you see that on on curated uh, Facebook groups, like on private or yeah. secret Facebook groups. But on, on LinkedIn, if I just post a random article, it's usually very respectful to comments. And if somebody goes off the deep end, like I'm always interested in discussion. I don't mind if people disagree with me. If someone just goes in and says, you know, who's this creepy guy? Then I usually delete that because my 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 view always is if if you know, when I write an article, it's like I'm inviting everybody into my living room. If someone comes into my living room, takes a shit, I'll kick them out. So I'm, I don't have, I have no problem against deleting inappropriate comments. But there's, it's usually very little of that on LinkedIn. I think my most, you know, the, the worst comments I ever get on, on a LinkedIn article is, why is this on LinkedIn? Yeah. So because sometimes I'll write about stuff that doesn't necessarily have to do with um, the professional workplace. But my view is since I've, I feel I've established credibility about writing about that space that that gives me leeway to say, okay, there's things out, you know, for someone who's a professional and who wants to be successful, there's other aspects of life too. So I feel comfortable writing those articles on LinkedIn as well. But I think that that, I love that you get that kind of pushback because that to me is what makes LinkedIn. Yes. LinkedIn is that people are willing to say, the users are willing to say, this network is not for that kind of stuff. And that's, you can write whatever you want. It's an open platform. But I do love this kind of self-policing um, network uh, experience on LinkedIn where there are people who say, I'm here for a certain reason. I want to get certain information. And I would like for my LinkedIn to be like, I don't want to hear about politics. I don't want to talk about politics. I don't want to hear about your family life. I like, let's talk about how you're getting ahead or what you're doing or what inspires you so that I can know how to make my own career or life or, or find those better or find new opportunities. And and not only that, like I, what's what's the relationship now still with um, LinkedIn and, and Linda, which you guys yeah. bought, uh, you know, years ago, Yeah, uh, which I thought was a great acquisition. And I'll, I'll tell you why is because uh, I think two things. One is I think people think it's either college education or nothing, meaning you're either, you're either going to have a college education and be a success or you're going to be a failure. And I think online resources like Linda show that you could learn up-to-date skills 
very quickly to be ready for new waves of jobs, like kind of the cycle of jobs and new opportunities is faster and faster. Like now there's a need for, you know, self-driving car engineers. Like you even listed in your article, your excellent article on, on the top startups to work for, how many of those companies were self-driving car companies? Yeah. Three, think, three of the companies, self-driving car I think companies. more than three. I think there was the obvious ones, but then there was ones just there was also vehicle self-driving vehicles. There was the AI behind right, self-driving exactly. cars. Yeah. So I think there was more like five or six. Well, there is a, I think that your point is is dead on, which is if you are not keeping your skills up to date, you're not going to be able to get ahead in whatever job you're in. But I also, but I, I, I agree as well that in the future, this idea of getting a formal education either goes away or it probably doesn't, it probably never goes away. But it definitely morphs, and it gets right. to a point where you really do just need to know certain skills. You have to know how to do what you're. You, you have to know how to do what you're doing, and and what the next potential job is, either at a different company or at your current company, or if you want to start a company. And we bought Linda, um, knowing that that was getting a sense that that was where things were going. That this kind of skill development was essential for any professional. Right, and I, and my guess is. Uh, a, five years ago, there were probably no job openings for self-driving car engineers. Right. Now, uh, if there's a class on Linda or a course on Linda, how to be a self-driving car engineer, I'm just making this up. Chances are that's before anybody's offering a bachelor's degree in it. Like, you know, online um, schools like Linda uh, are beating out the colleges in terms of seeing what the trends are because colleges are not set up to move that fast. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the the it's we now call it LinkedIn Learning, and the people the the team at LinkedIn Learning is so good at seeing where and they can watch what people you know. There's all kinds yeah, the of data, data that we get that says here are the class, here are the skills that people are paying most attention to, and these are the courses they're finishing. Oh, and if these are the courses they're finishing, let's make sure that we build other courses that are similar to these. And what are the ones that they're not doing as much of? As should we do fewer of those courses? And also, these instructors are constantly keeping up with what's going on. So there are changes in Adobe Photoshop. Uh, the LinkedIn Learning team instantly gets that instructor back in to walk through the new version of, of Adobe Photoshop. And you can imagine being in school. If you're a professor, you write a syllabus once. You teach that syllabus over and over again. Maybe you update it occasionally. But in the world we live in today, you have to stay up to date. You have to know what's coming. So those guys are, are they do an awesome job. Right. I mean, like, and, and this is not really meant to bash on colleges, but basically like when a really great educator gets tenure, there's not as much incentive for them to just keep up to date. Tenure basically means their job is fixed forever. Uh, they don't have to worry about being fired, particularly from a well-funded school. So, so, and with tuitions always rising to incredible prices, most schools are well-funded. Um, there's no incentive for them to keep up with the latest Adobe Photoshop hacks or whatever. But, you know, I also like how, and, and this is related to LinkedIn learning, but it's also related to other parts of LinkedIn. You guys use data, like what jobs are people searching for or skill sets are people searching for on LinkedIn that they're failing to find? And then you use that data to kind of build up those parts of either LinkedIn Learning or LinkedIn or whatever. Yeah, that's right. No, the data is is really inc the, the amount of data that is generated on LinkedIn and the what it, how it can be used to help other people is really phenomenal. So you can watch what here are the companies and you know, we know what what jobs companies are hiring for. We know the skills they're putting in their 
um, in their job ads. We know that if you have certain skills, who's getting hired faster based on the skills that they have? So what, what's, that, what's an example? Like what's surprising you? Well, I think what, what completely surprises me is that um, the number one skill gap, the company, the, the, the skill that companies say they need the most of that they're not seeing are communication skills. You would ah, think that in an era where there's like AI is, you know, we're, we, we know that AI is a huge part of the future. We know that software engineering is the most in-demand um, job that every company now is a tech company and they have to have these engineers building stuff for them. But still the area where hiring managers are saying that they are lacking the most is people who can communicate and people who can talk, who can write memos, who can explain why they're doing what they're doing. And I think that's a really, first of all, it's really as a, as a journalism and econ major in college, it's a really rewarding thing to know that, you know, these are skills that are still necessary. But it also tells you a lot about the state of the world that as that you have to develop these skills, you have to develop, you have to be specialized in certain areas. You have to know how to do a lot, but you also have to be able to communicate and share. And no matter what happens with AI, no matter how machine um, uh, learning changes how we do our jobs or eliminates certain jobs and brings new ones, we're always going to need that ability to be able to explain why you're doing what you're doing, to sell, to be able to um, offer opinions, to be able to, to, to get people on your side on things. And companies feel like they're not getting it right now. Well, it's so interesting because um, you, know, you always have your, your list of top LinkedIn influencers and in, I think it might have been management, you had uh, Beth Comstock in yeah. your top ten, and she's recently she was the vice chairman of GE, and her background was public relations and communications. And uh, she was recently on the podcast, and she was basically saying, as GE was trying to communicate their vision, particularly post nine eleven, when the world was scared, uh, you know, uh, you know, the GE management was probably quite correctly focused on, well, how do we? communicate that we're always going to increase profits or revenues by 10% and this and that, and it was all numbers. And she made the point, numbers don't tell a story and you always have to tell a story. We're, we're, we're a, a civilization of storytellers and yeah. that's how we communicate from generation to generation. And, and your recent, um, you know, co-author or co-researcher on uh, actually on your top startups article was George Anders. Yeah. Uh, and he wrote a book recently about how, uh, don't you know? Don't assume STEM is the only way to go. If if in your majors, you know, science, technology, engineering, I don't know what the M is. What's the M? Mathematics. Math, yeah. And uh, uh, you, it's very important. A liberal arts degree is in demand because storytelling. I mean, just you know, just in terms of marketing, the only way to sell a product is to market it, and that's all storytelling. That's right. And first of all, George is, is the best, and he's now a editor at LinkedIn. He does amazing work. Uh, I love his yeah. stuff. I've read a couple of his books. Have, he's have, only read three on? books, and I've read like two of them. Have you had him on the show? I haven't. Steve, we should get George Anders on the all show. Right. Yeah, definitely. He's phenomenal. And by the way, Yuval was saying something similar, too, about the importance of philosophers now with AI. They're more important. Oh, yeah. Liberal arts things. Yeah. Well, I think that there is a – you talk about marketing, you talk about selling. There is – even if you're not in sales, we're all in sales positions, and we're all marketing at some point. Whether you're marketing to your own – you're marketing externally, you're trying to get by people to buy your products, or you're marketing internally, and you're trying to get people to buy into your vision or do their best work. And I, so I'm just looking at I had some stats that, that we pulled recently – that found that um, eighty percent of people under twenty four would consider changing jobs, uh, changing occupations altogether. Okay, and, let me ask you yeah. about that. I'm going to ask you about each stat you have. All right. So 
you're under 24, you just spent four years majoring in X and you got, you know, hopefully you didn't have student loans, but unfortunately most people are right. suffered with, with student loans. Let's say you're over $100,000 in debt. Some students are much more in debt. How do you change jobs if you're stuck in these debt situations? Yeah, well, I think that there is a, you've got to remember the people who are coming out of school right now are entering the best job market since 2007. They only know good times. Right. And that's been true for the last few years. So they're getting better jobs. They're leaving their jobs and they're getting better jobs so, quickly. So it's so totally like, different than, you know, a few years ago than, than when probably the last time I was, I guess it was before that in, in the late 2000s when you couldn't get a job. People were leaving with these big student loans and they were living in their parents' basements and desperately trying to get any kind of job to pay off the loans. Right. It's just a different era right now. No, it's so true. I guess that's right. You know, I kind of myself always have to keep updated. Like, I guess it was about five years ago, I went down to NYU and started interviewing kids in Washington Square Park and they were all suffering in terms of like, you know, the kind of jobs that they hoped to get, but the actual jobs they were getting. But I'm not even as up to date now. That was five years ago, which is now a long time. Yeah. And what jobs, like, let's say you're a communication, let's say you're an English major or humanities general major in, in a school, uh, let's say a mid-tier school, what job would you recommend they go for based on the data you're seeing on LinkedIn? Oh, God. Um, I don't know. That's a hard one. I think that there is a, it really depends on what you want to do with your life. I mean, it depends on where you want to go. I think that you, and I think that, that people who are graduating today know this, that it is about, and you were discussing this before, it's about skill development. So if you get out and you are an English major, you have to think about what is the, what are the general, you don't have to know your path. There are no paths anymore. I, I really believe that the entire career no ladder one path. Is, is broken. Yeah. Right. And when I got out, when I went to, when I left school, I went to a, uh, I wanted to be a business journalist. I went to- You went to the best a, school for journalism. I went to Northwestern. I was a great school. And then I applied to every single business newspaper in the country. And because I, I had a path in mind, business newspaper, you work for a major magazine, you and you, then you become the editor of that. And that while I was on that path, while I was on that ladder, that ladder just completely disappeared. And journalism was one of the first to get hit, but everyone's been hit since then. Right, because it, when you say journalism, I mean, there's obviously still newspapers and stuff, but I do think uh, the, the trend sort of started when, when Rupert Murdoch bought the Wall Street Journal, I feel, and all my friends who were working there they started to quit because Rupert Murdoch basically said, cut all the articles in half and just stick to the facts, like no, right. Right. no opinions. And um, so just list the information. And, and also salaries were just going straight down because there was no need. He could outsource the news to India. There was no need to really get, uh, I don't know, is that the trend that happened? Is that how journalism, when you say well, journalism broke down, like what happened? I mean, the, the, first of all, the money just started disappearing so that the, the, the advertisers found they could go on social media, they could buy Google ads and get a much more targeted, they could get the same targeting that they were getting in Fortune for a lot less money. Yeah, and with more data. More data. They were getting, they were getting the, the marketers who never had the data before. We in our industry sold them, you know, magic. Hey, you come on and uh, you you buy an ad in Fortune, you reach exactly the right people. But we're not going to say how or who you're reaching, but trust us, you're reaching the right people. 
And then Google said, here are exactly the people you're reaching. Here is what here the are their names. Here are the names, <laughs> right, exactly. And that was obviously really enticing to marketers. Um, and so the ads started disappearing, the money started disappearing, and because of that, and then, the, at least for me, I was in print. You know, the, the, the magazine started getting smaller and smaller, and there were fewer pages, and like you were saying, you had to write. It became tougher. Everything, as the pie shrunk, every decision got harder on, were you going to send someone out to write a story? Were you going to invest? Could you afford to invest someone to spend three months writing a really major article? And you got to a point where people needed to write four or five a day. You put them on the web. It was, the metabolism was getting faster, and the rewards were starting to get smaller in traditional media. On the other hand, things started opening up everywhere. People started saying, I want to build a newsroom here, or I need people who are excellent writers, or maybe you want to do ebooks. And I think that you've been a great example of this is finding really new path. If you're someone who's just great at writing and interviewing, there are all kinds of opportunities right. available to you that you don't have to work for a massive company. You can find your own path. And so at the same time the ladder started disappearing, a million smaller ladders opened up. And that is, you know, to go back to your original question about what you want to do, the, to me it's, it is, you get a job that will invest in you. And I think that this is what we hear from from students when they're graduating is that they are picking companies based on places where they feel like they are going to get an investment in building skills for the future. And again, it's not about they're, that they're going to be put on a, a, a ladder and get a gold watch after 50 years. They're saying, hey, are you going to help me become great at um, understanding how to evaluate companies or how to uh, learn SQL or how to do this or how to do that? They 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 know that they need to go and get get these skills. And companies... We have, we have a list that we put out called the top companies list um, that looks at where people are uh, going to work, where they, they don't leave once they get there, where when a company open, puts a job application out, they get um, a obscene number of people applying for those jobs and where people spend their time um, investigating the company and the company's employees. Those companies that are at the top of the list, like Uber, two years ago, Uber was at the top, was number one. Now, I think you or I, especially when Uber was in the news in a very negative way, would say, you know, I, I, you would assume that Uber would be getting hit and that people wouldn't want to work at Uber. But when we reported out the story, Caroline Fairchild, who's a reporter on the team, reported out the story where she talked to people and said, why are you working at Uber? And the answer was always, oh, they're like, I'm learning great stuff. This is a, a high-pressure place where I'm learning how to do cool things. They're investing in me. They give me a ton of responsibility. I mean, it's still, even though it's a huge company, it's 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 still very entrepreneurial. So you're exactly. learning how to build businesses and Uber's constantly exploring new ways to, yeah. to make money with Uber Eats or self-driving or whatever. Yep, and they invest in people to say, you go figure this out. And that's a very, um, for, the, for a younger generation in the workforce, actually, this is probably true for everyone in the workforce, who realizes what's going on is getting those skills and realizing that you can use them anywhere is now what the top talent is is embracing running towards. Well, well, Uber. Let, let's let's stand Uber as an example. Like, let's say you have a humanities degree of some sort. Uh, Uber A has to tell their story because mm -hmm. they've had a problem in the news and they have to figure out a way to tell their story to keep uh, attracting customers, investors, you know, and 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 so on, which is extremely important and. It's not like one person is going to solve that problem for them. That requires a team of people. Uh, I think also as you move into self-driving, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, uh, that's a story that needs to be told. That's like, right. you know, they're dealing, dealing with local governments. Yeah, dealing with local governments. You have to be able to to 
tell the story to local governments how this is good for the citizens as opposed to taking jobs from cab drivers. Yep. You know, with autonomous vehicles, let's say there's one death, you have to also put it in context. There's a million human-related traffic deaths a year. Okay, there was one autonomous yeah. uh, accident that wasn't even the vehicle's fault. You have to be able to kind of take, you know, all this, you know, sort of mindless headlines and put them in the context of your company and build a story around it. And and that's always valuable. Yeah. Like people people depend on that. Like I remember uh when when Brexit happened, you know, this is a couple of years ago, the stock markets were all falling that morning, but it turned out most people didn't really understand what it was. So taking complicated international issues or company issues or personal issues and putting them in context that people can understand, that a three-year-old can understand is is extremely valuable, even more so when AI is telling the story. So a lot of companies, you, you had a lot of AI companies on your list of top startups. AI takes millions of pieces of data and then in a way that's impossible for humans under, to understand, helps you make a decision going forward. And being able to explain how that happens uh, when when the actual process is not understandable on purpose, that's a difficult story to tell. Absolutely. And let's say that you're working at a hedge fund and you're using AI-based strategies um, to try to beat the market. You're, you're not beating the market. Your investors come and say, what's going on? You can't say, oh, the machine picked these stocks. You have to be able to explain why it's doing what it's doing. So which means understanding, you know, it's not a liberal arts. You can't, I don't think that today you can just be a liberal arts person. You have to understand or be comfortable around data. You don't have to be able to pull it yourself, although that's a good skill to have. Um, but you have to be able to make sense of it and to be able to, and I think that the real, uh, I think people who can find stories out of data are the ones who are going to really succeed, who can look at charts and say, oh, I understand what's going on here. I'm going to tell this story. That, that, that's a good point because let's say 50, 60 years ago, what you had to, or 100 years ago, what you had to understand from a communications point of view is, okay, this is how the assembly line works. This is how the factory works. This is how our industrial process works and how we save costs and how we use you know, good labor and so on. Now we're not in a factory-driven world. Fa factories don't make the products. Data often makes the products. And so it's not it's not like you have to learn this hard skill like computer science and quantum mechanics. You just have to learn what, you know, like, again, I'll take Beth Comstock as an example. She had to learn how a jet engine was made, not the hardcore engineering, but just, That's okay, right. this is roughly what we do. And she had to be able to communicate. Now you have to learn roughly how data and, and science works. And I think that information was always sort of closely held by programmers like, oh, we're programmers. You could never understand this. But now I think it is understandable and there is a, a huge, as you could call it, a gap between taking those skill sets and being able to explain them so that, you know, the media could understand, employees could understand, investors could understand, a child could understand, and so on. I'll give you an example. I totally agree. And I'll give you an example from internal from at LinkedIn is one of my colleagues, a guy named Pete Davis, former BBC radio guy, became a product manager, and he's the product manager for the um, for content on LinkedIn, and he works really closely with the relevance engineers, and they'll sit down and, and Pete, who doesn't who doesn't build relevance um, engines, 
But we'll have theories about like what if you know what we what we're concerned at LinkedIn with is making sure that when you go to your feed, you're seeing great conversations that are relevant to you that make you want to join the conversation yourself and add a little bit of your own unique perspective so that everyone kind of gets smarter. But we it means getting you the right content at the right time and giving you that sense that you can contribute also, that this is a place where you can add your own voice. So it sounds nice and aspirational, but then you have to get down to the brass tacks of what do you, if there are a billion things that you can show someone, how do you pick the right things to show people? So Pete sits down with the relevance team and they'll come up with theories about things like, well, maybe, you know, what if we go this way? What if, and, you, and it starts with telling that story. It starts with understanding understanding the psychology of what does it take to get someone to contribute? What do people want when they show up on their feet? And then you have to, and then the relevance engineers, and these guys are all brilliant and they, you know, have incredible formulas that, that I can't follow. And, but they'll sit down and start put, making the math out of the philosophy. And it's when you bring that math, the philosophy together, that really magical things happen. So, so like, for instance, do you take a look at, like, like, take me as an example, I might engage, I might comment on some things, com not comment on yeah. others. Do you keep track of what types of articles I comment on and then start showing me those articles in my feed? Sure. So we will, there's two things that we do. One is, yes, absolutely we do that. These are the topics that James is interested in. And the way you tell us what topics you're interested in are, we, we, there are implicit and explicit signals. A implicit one might be, well, we know your profile. We know where you work. We know what industry you're in. We know what your history has been. Show James similar stories that, that other people like him are looking at. Um, we know your network. We know who you're connected to and who you're following. So we can show you, th we'll always show you things that your network is publishing or commenting on because we know that you'll want the most interesting, like when you show up at a party, you want to find people and you don't know anyone. The first thing you do, at least I do, is you look for someone that you recognize and you go attach yourself to that person and you're like, oh, let's talk about something that we have in common until you feel comfortable. So we'll always show you things from people that you know. Um, and then there are uh, explicit signals, which are things that you do where you tell us you want to follow a certain topic. You're interested in Bitcoin. We're going to show you, you follow the hashtag Bitcoin, we'll show you Bitcoin articles and, and, um, and posts. Th and that's not different than most social networks. The difference for us is that we know who you are. You've given us your, you know, you, your full profile is, is baked into LinkedIn. Um, the One of the areas, though, that... that we do veer a little bit different than our peers is that we also have an editorial team, which is what I run, and we'll show you the news, the top news of the day. And what are the news the professionals are talking about or that are making, that are that are breaking? And can we give you those articles so that you sound smart, so that you show up at a meeting and you know what's going on, so that you know the latest things happening at Tesla and that when someone brings it up, you're like, you're absolutely, yeah, I, I saw that news. Because for professionals, staying informed of the wider world is as important or is um, maybe not as important, but it's, it is a very important part of being a, a professional is understanding what's going on outside of your small, your small world. And, and I think, I think uh, curation is a uh, getting more and more uh, respect in the sense that, uh, you know, with you, you know, you have 2 million posts a day going onto LinkedIn YouTube has like a billion videos a day getting uploaded. And on the one hand, this is great where there's a long tail of, you know, readers and viewers who, who you know, every article will get some reader. Right. But, you know, having a good curator is, is really now uh, almost the sign of intelligence, being able to kind of 
find the signal through the noise. Yeah, there's too much. I mean, you go to your, there's, there's just too much to consume. So right. you need someone or, or ideally a combination of, of uh, machines and people to help get you the right content so that you, and especially in a business context where, you know, time is money or you can't, or maybe you don't, you, you just want to finish your job and go spend time with your family. Like we, we think a lot about of the time you're going to spend on LinkedIn, how do we make sure that it's the most, you're getting the most reward for it? That if people, if you look at those surveys of people say how much time they're spending somewhere and, and how happy they are with the time they spent or how rewarding it was, we always want to be on the, on the end of that was a good investment of my time. Because for LinkedIn, the people that are on LinkedIn, are, there's, there's some of the, um, uh, you know, some of the, this, these are the times where you could be spending your time doing really productive things. And so LinkedIn's got to feel productive also. So curation for us fits into that. When you come and you look at a news article and we do a little, for, so we have something called um, trending storylines, which are just what's, what's trending on LinkedIn. An editor writes up a quick summary, and then we show you great conversations that are taking place that you might want to dive in, but you don't have to. You might just want to say, oh, you know, here's Spotify IPO, here's someone, here's a musician and giving his take on it. Here is an analyst giving her take on it, and here's a competitor saying why this thing was never going to work. And maybe you only need those three, and one is an area you want to dive into, and the other two you don't care about. Or maybe you just want to read all three or leave one comment. That's fine, but what we can't show you is an endless list of people commenting on it. You just don't you don't have time for it. If you right. want to, if you want to dive in, that's always an option. But we also realize that you have limited time. We want to give you just what matters. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So, if you have a home but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly 
or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So what's another statistic that you had here? All right, this is a good one. Um, is that for people under 24, uh, the the number one thing they're looking for, and we talked a little bit about this, is growth, that culture and, and relationships are way more important than any kind of benefits. I guess that's not surprising so, well, if you well, are. Well, well let yeah. me ask about that because uh, it seems like, like when I visited LinkedIn in, in California, gosh, I think it was like four years ago, uh, you know, I asked, um, the people I was speaking to, what's the what's the trend of people searching for side hustles or gigs yeah. like in the gig economy? And they didn't pay much attention to the question because it was like less than 1% of searches, but they did say it was doubling or tripling every year. So it was the fastest growing type of search, but it was still less than 1%. So they weren't focused on that. But how is, and 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 for me, that's strongly related to culture, particularly among young people. Has that statistic changed, or has that become a different part of LinkedIn? Yeah, I mean, it is very clearly a something that we are focused on because even though it still isn't huge, it is going. It, all signs show that it is going to be huge. The people are, um, if they're not, if they don't have a side hustle, they're thinking about it. They are, 
and it kind of ties in with a lot of the trends we've talked about, which is this idea of building skills and of not having career ladders, um, which is that you either want a side hustle, and, and Reed Hoffman wrote about this in his book, and about having a plan A, a plan B, and a plan Z. You have to have all of those at all times. And and Define plan Z. Uh, plan Z, I think, is is that side. If I'm, it was a couple of years ago now, so as I said, I'm like, oh, shit, I wonder if I can, I hope I can remember <laughs> each one. But plan Z, I think, is the side hustle, which is you keep one thing baking you know, in the oven. And that's your back. And that's, it's not making money right now. It might, might not make money for you for a few years, but it's that thing that you've got cooking that it's the ripcord that you pull when A and B fall apart and you say, all right, I got to, I'm going to go start over and I've got this thing and I'm going to go chase it. And maybe it's something you just love and you're not sure how you're going to make money on it yet, but you're going to at some point. It could be, hopefully it becomes your, not just a passion, but a way that you can support yourself too. And, and how do you see, not not just young people, but even people mid-age who are looking to reinvent themselves yeah. and, and not go into a corporate job every day, how do you see them using LinkedIn to find that passion job or that side totally. hustle or that gig job? Yeah, and I think it's important to, to point out that this is not just a young person's thing. This should be for right. how everyone, in fact, it's probably more important if, as you get on in your career and knowing that the um, state of work is, I guess, precarious is the wrong way to say it, but that it is changing so fast as keeping something in your back pocket is more essential than ever. And um, I would use LinkedIn as to, to, to make that work in a couple ways. One is you want to... First, you just want to write and share around what you're interested in, and you'll start building up this community of people who are adding on to your voice. And uh, I agree with that. Yeah. In, fact, in fact, if you hadn't mentioned that, I was going to say that because oh, I have had that experience on LinkedIn, but but go ahead. Well, I love when people, when I see people who are like, um, hey, I'm thinking about getting into podcasts. What should I know? Simple questions like that, you start seeing this amazing response where people just want to, they want to give, they, they, they are waiting for that moment to be able to share their what they are what, what where their expertise they're wait they want to give back I and mean, people i think inherently want to give help um what what we inherently don't want to do is ask for help and i think the big change comes when it's you start really realizing that you can start asking for help and you're going to get a response if you ask for help and it's just and no one responds it's really terrifying it's a horrible feeling well, let, let's focus yeah. on that cuz i think people are afraid to ask for help yeah. cuz it's it, it feels like a shows weakness it it feels like then you're going to owe a favor if someone helps you but but on the flip side people actually do want to help they want to feel like they're an expert on something and and it feels good to help somebody else it, it's not like that someone owes them a favor after that exactly so 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 that that's really important you i mean i don't know if you have this but you should almost have a Q&A section on linkedin kind of a quora for linkedin yeah we we had it years ago, and that problem of of fighting that problem of we had it when I first it must have been two thousand ten I think we had a Q and A was way too early because of that problem of people being scared to ask the questions. Everyone wanted to answer a question, but people were scared to ask. But now you have so but many experts too exactly. who are willing to help. Yeah, like all your influencers want to get uh, help as much as possible. They'll they'll get into that, and Quora is getting that mind share. You know that Q and A mind share, right? And. Uh, you know, it hasn't, you know, Yahoo Answers didn't really work. I don't know if Google tried to Google Answers, but I bet you LinkedIn Answers, because it's so highly specific, not highly specific, but it's around the professional and workplace and, and work there's no life. anonymity. I think one of the, I mean, right. if, we, for, if you spend any time on Yahoo questions, what was it called? Yahoo Answers? I can't remember yeah, Yahoo Answers, answers. yeah. And the, the answers were just, you know, there was just people trolling all day long. And right. so it was a horrible, it was, it was not a great, you didn't actually get answers to the questions. 
But you can't do that on LinkedIn when you're when your boss is seeing what you're writing. Like you got to give good answers. Um, but people do want to. They are willing to ask questions more these days, and they are willing. And everyone still wants to be able to give answers. So, oh my go god, back to the I would be again. all over LinkedIn Q and A all day long. Yeah, I'm telling you. Well, Beth, you talked about Beth Comstock. You know, Beth was a. Um, we do something every morning called the Daily Rundown. So if you are do this in 12 countries now, if you every morning on LinkedIn you get a notification saying Daily Rundown is ready. It's five topics that you need to know about today, and then one kind of. Um, idea of the day, some some piece of advice from someone who is just explaining how to think about managing your life. And Beth, for a week, was a guest uh, commenter on it, where she was just, she would look at the five comments, five five items, and then give her own perspective on any one of them. She was just giving back. Beth's someone who has spent an entire career at the highest levels of business. She knows a lot about how to manage your career, what's going on in the world, in uh, in the economy. And she was just offering her own perspective. And Beth could do a, she could spend her time doing a billion things. The fact that she was willing to give back to the community, I think, says a lot about how willing people are to give that kind of advice or share what they've learned. I mean, and again, um, I don't mean to bring up Quora too much. I, I I happen to love that site, but I do think a LinkedIn QA would be a, a great place to spend time. You look at Quora, if I were to say, how did you know Andy Weir write the Martian? Did he research Mars? Andy Weir might respond. Like, you know, you know. People from, you know, Jimmy Wales, uh, if someone asks about Wikipedia, Jimmy Wales responds. If someone asks about AOL, Steve Case responds. So people are willing. I mean, I think even Barack Obama has responded about healthcare there. People are willing to answer questions that potentially 500 million people could read. Yeah. One of our, um, one of the most followed people on LinkedIn is Ray Dalio. Do you know Ray? He's the CEO. Ray's been on the podcast. Oh, yes. Yeah, I know him very well. So Ray's amazing, and he shouldn't, you know, years ago, Ray would never have been a celebrity. There there was no, Ray was a hedge fund guy. He should yeah. be in his Connecticut world, secretive, running these things. But Ray started to give back, and the people who hang on to Ray's words are legion. They are, they're waiting for Ray to give advice. And what's great is that Ray gets into the comments. When people, he'll write something about what's going on with the economy or how to manage your company or... Um, uh, just perspectives on, on on what's going on in business. And then people give their own advice. And it could be someone who's just out of college. It could be someone who is uh, uh, 30 years in sales in India. It doesn't matter to him. He just wants, he just, when it, he sees a smart comment or a great question, he's in there giving an answer. Yeah. And, you know, in his book, Principles, was yeah, great. It's a great I, book. I, that probably was an accumulation of him realizing when he responds to comments, people are paying attention. When I was coming here to interview Ray, uh, I was going downstairs in my elevator. I had his book Principles in my hand. The woman next to me in the elevator, I didn't know who she was. Uh, she said, oh, I've read that book cover to cover. And I'm like, oh, really? I'm about to go interview the author. And she said, can you please ask him this for me? Because she was having a problem in, at her job and she felt her problem couldn't quite be solved using his principles. And so I was able to ask Ray the question and then convey back to her his, his answer. That's great. People want help. They, yeah. they, are, they are hungry for these kind of answers. And I think especially at a point where, to go back to the changing world of business, is that there, you're also expected to figure things out in a way that, that 20 years you weren't. Um, like when what? you are, I think that you, when you get to a certain 
because middle management is no longer a real career, you can't become a middle manager somewhere. You're expected to run your own um, your own operation, to figure out what the problems are, to figure out the answers, and then to tell other people. And this constant kind of sharing up and down is an essential part of of business today, which means that you're not waiting for someone to tell you. It's not a command and control. It's much less of a command and control economy than it used to be, where your boss would tell you what to do and you would do it. And now your boss comes to you and says, what should we do? Right. And you come up, you help come up with answers. You're expected to help come up with answers and plans. But a lot of times we don't know the answers. We don't know the questions to ask. And we're looking for advice from all over. And I think this applies not to, just to uh, the corporate hierarchy, but also to the gig economy. Exactly. So yeah. if, if I say, okay, I'm going to be um, a professional wedding photographer, I can't just be good at photography I also have to have a sales component. Like, how am I going to get into a network of you know a network of wedding planners to to book gigs? But then I also have to understand the basics of payroll and HR and these kinds of things. And I learn I can learn that information. I'm not trying to push up LinkedIn here, but I can learn that information yeah. on resources like LinkedIn. You could do things like how do I bill? I mean, you're a wedding photographer. That's great. You have to have the skills to shoot pictures. But how do you bill people? What's the right? How do you price yourself? And they're really basic questions that you can get answers to by just asking how to do this stuff. Um, you should almost uh, 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 do, you know, if you see common searches of questions, yeah. you should almost do uh, FAQs that's a great one. that are, are that are curated from on the top viewed articles on a topic. I'm so, so, so how to build someone, how to value yourself. I'm sure a million people have written about it and a million people have asked about it. I bet you can do an FAQ and then with links to the articles. That's an awesome idea. All right, end of the year, we're doing that. <laughs> um, George Anders did something r recently called, he called um, Ace the Interview. And he realized from talking, and one of the things George does is he just has this incredible network of career placement, uh, people who run career placement centers at universities. And one of the frequent things that these career placement people were hearing from um, from businesses was that, they were getting people to, who were coming in who didn't know how to interview. They just didn't. They were bad at getting at, at interviewing for jobs. Beautiful resume, great profile. They could do all that. And as soon as they got in front of another human, they just they, they flopped. So George did this thing with called AC Interview where he asked people to record a video, put it up on LinkedIn. Uh, he, and he said, here are, common, here are the most common interview questions that companies ask. And it's things like, tell me about a challenge you've had in your job. And... Then he asked students and people, not just students, people who were kind of early, kind of career, early as early in their career, but you didn't have to be, to post a example of how they would answer that question. And then he asked recruiters to come and and um, weigh in in the comments and give advice back on how they should answer it. That's great. And it was great. And then and it wasn't just recruiters. Then once that started building steam and it showing, started showing up in people's feeds, other people came in and they started giving advice. And all of a sudden you had you know, a thousand people telling you, giving you tips on how to be better at interviewing for a job so that you could land better jobs. And it's just a very cool, once you put yourself out there and you're willing to ask for help, the help, the answers come back. People just, they haven't had a way to be able to offer the advice before. And now we have a scalable way to offer that advice. I think it's really cool. Yeah, and, and um, okay, so what's another statistic? I'm fascinated by, right, here's by a good work one. statistics. 33%, this is true of all workers, 33% of workers today have told us that they would take a 10% pay cut in order to gain flexibility in their jobs, that they want to be able to control when they work and where they work. You know, it, it, that's interesting because I always thought the phenomenon of salary increases 
is, how do I describe this? It doesn't really matter. Like, let's say you get a, let's say you're making 60,000 a year and you get a 10% increase. That seems like a lot because it's bigger than inflation, but you're making 66,000 a year now. And after taxes, that's, you know, it's as if you made an extra 4,000. I don't know that that's, you know, 300 bucks, 320 bucks a week right. uh, or a month. And it doesn't like sal salary increases or decreases don't really change lifestyle at all, unless it's like a, a force multiplier, unless it's like 2X or more. And you can get that with multiple income streams or multiple jobs uh, or switching industries and building up or being an entrepreneur, which I don't always encourage. But you know, there, there's more important things than just a salary increase, and that statistic sort of proves it. Yeah, and the salary, it's, I've never thought about it that way. The salary increases are, it's typically is someone asking just to be validated in their job. Like, they, right. you're right, the, the money is not going to be, most of the time the money isn't really meaningful until you change position, you get on more, take more responsibility, you change job, or you, you know, there's some kind of a liquidity event. Um, so if you're looking for that kind of, someone telling you you're doing a good job, there are better ways to do it. It might be, hey, we're going to give you more flexibility. We trust you more. Why don't you start, if you, you want to work from home, work from home. You want to, and... And I think that employers are starting to realize that that is something that they can offer, especially at a time when there are more job openings now than there are people applying for jobs. I don't know if you've seen this stat. No. So the the um, uh, BLS recently had that stat says that th this is there are more job openings than there are pe than there are people looking for jobs. That changes how companies work. Suddenly they have to be able to think about. They have to start offering more flexibility. They have to think about ways to. They either have to do two things. They have to pay people a lot more, which they've been unwilling to do so far. Um, or they have to find, they have to give people things that will make them want to come that aren't tied to money. So flexibility is a really good example of that. Yeah, and you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned in your article, I was so, so surprised. Spotify gives six months parental leave. Yeah, six month paid parental leave. So another amazing, and what, what does that tell you? That tells you they are investing in, the people that they are saying we want yes it's important that you are that you your whole self is satisfied we will be fine as a company go away for six months come back you know as a, a proud parent and, and you'll come back in your job it's a smart investment it is hard yeah as a manager who has people go on paternity and maternity leave it is you know you you know that the whole team has to do more work over that time but the, when the person comes is it is a hundred percent worth it when the person comes back and they feel great and they, and they're happy and they're not thinking about, oh, I, you know, why did I just leave my kid at home after six? It's it's inhuman to ask someone to come back to work after I think after like two weeks, three weeks, the way that we used to do it. Companies like Spotify are so smart to offer that because it just makes people proud of where they work and they want to come and stay. Yeah, and um, I don't know if you've ever have you ever visited uh, the Facebook campus in California? I haven't. No, it's like a mini city, <laughs> like. Uh, I, I don't know. There's like Starbucks. I think there's, I don't know if there's a McDonald's, but there's like restaurants. You can get your haircut there. Uh, it's, it's like, again, it's like a mini city. You never have to leave. It feels like you're home when you're at Facebook. And, you know, Google has a similar kind of campus. I haven't seen if LinkedIn's done any improvements in the past four years. I felt at the time they could have been up their campus, but, you know, all, all in good time. You have 560 million users, so you'll you'll get there. <laughs> But uh, but I great, but I yeah. think like work and obviously you've stayed at LinkedIn forever like you know you have to work at a great place now otherwise people people want to switch very quickly yeah. from jobs.
And you, you mentioned the phenomenon in your article, ghosting. People will just stop showing up for a job and stop returning phone calls. This is totally tied to the tight labor market. Is we And this came from some of the data and comments on LinkedIn, is we started seeing a trend of recruiters just complaining about people not showing up to interviews. And they were asking these questions. How do you get someone to show up? You know, six years ago, that question, you didn't ask that question. If you had a job opening, people came and they they were, you had more candidates than you than you could even go through. Now, hiring managers and recruiters are finding that they will offer people a chance to come in and interview for a job and the person just doesn't show up. Or, or they'll get the worse, job. They get the job, but they don't show up to the first day. I mean, what a crazy Is idea. there a Yelp for employees? Because obviously there's no accountability. In the comment section, a lot of people were asking for that. Um, exactly that. And there was something like, I was just looking at this, there were like 1.6 million views of the article and 5,000 comments. And in the comments were a lot of people who were saying like, we should have a list that shows people who ghosted. So that all employers can know who is who is it that's not showing up to these to these jobs because you shouldn't that should be a black mark against all companies and that that doesn't exist and that's I think a really good thing because when we asked people who had ghosted why they ghosted they had sometimes pretty good they had reasons that made sense to them that as a manager don't make a lot of sense but you can understand how someone would think that way and so some of their answers were well you know was he I didn't want to. I, my, I know they had tons of candidates for this job, so they wouldn't even notice if I didn't show up. And and or I didn't want to like have a really tough conversation. I'd rather not say. My mom always told me, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. So I didn't say anything at all. It's like, well, those are not really good answers. In They're the not good answers. You can't you can't do that. But it wasn't people just being jerks to be jerks. They really well, people did are are afraid. People yeah. are afraid of conflict. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I, I'm going to write about this now on LinkedIn. You, you've inspired me. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you my story of, of ghosting. I've ghosted in a really horrible way. So I was hired by a firm. I showed up for work. I was there for a couple of weeks. I was, I set up, a, it was a, like a private equity firm. I set up a meeting with um, people investing in Brazil. Maybe we could do some deals with them. In the meeting, I was so bored and I had just had a, a not the greatest conversation about income with you know, the, one of the main partners of the firm. I had my name on a door. I had a nameplate on the desk. I had my jacket on my chair. I excused myself from the meeting to go to the bathroom. Instead of going to the bathroom, I just walked to the elevator. I said, hey, see you later to the receptionist. I, it was it was in the, the Trump building on Wall Street. I went all the way down from like the 60th floor to zero. I took the subway to Grand Central. I went home. And I just never showed up for work again. What? <laughs> yeah. Wait. So, and there were people still in the in the meeting room <laughs> waiting for you to return. Yeah, yeah. And wow. they called me for months, for about a year and a half. The main guy even called me a year and a half. All is forgiven. Just come back. <laughs> and I just never responded to them again. And that's and I will admit that's really bad behavior. Yeah. Right. So, but you can also see it's funny. One of those, I'm sure that in your that your mindset was, well, it's been too long for me to respond now, and then you just never respond. You should write about this. You'll get some really great comments. But it it just helps to know. It. You're right. It's not a it's not a good way to. It's always better to to communicate. So let me ask you about writing for LinkedIn because so when I first started writing for LinkedIn, um, so I have a couple of questions around this, and I think it'll uh, hopefully it'll help people other than just me. But uh, when I first started writing for LinkedIn, it was an open platform. That's right. Uh, it was you and uh, I guess the people working with you would invite like a hundred people. 
to write articles. And I was blessed to be one of them. I think I was like the last person <laughs> invited. Like you you closed the gates right That's after exactly. that because probably yeah. you were getting ready to move to an open platform. Yeah. But my first articles would get, I would get like a million views oh an article. It was, it, it was was shocking watching the watching our, our metrics when you posted something and you could see, you know, we were like cruising along, cruising along. And then James' article would post and said it was like, the spike up and you were just sucking all the all the traffic into your into your articles because you were writing I think in a really you wrote in a way that was at that time somewhat unusual and that you were very free and you still are but there are more people who are who are starting to who have adopted your style which is that you're very willing to your warts and all like you 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 what's the term you know open the kimono like you're willing to say like here's how I live here are the things I've done that are wrong you don't mind admitting faults in fact you kind of thrive in that world and um and you like the feedback that comes from it and that's not true for most people right but i think i think what happened was and and you use the phrase adopted my style i don't want to say i created the genre but i think a lot of people saw that traffic and followers are getting i mean i have a 1.1 million linkedin followers and so they they looked at my articles and they said, okay, he starts off by saying something bad about himself. So a lot more articles started doing that. I think people consciously or subconsciously started doing that style and getting more views and so on. Um, but also I had been writing at that point for uh, 25 years. So I think a lot of professionals, they're really good about writing about their profession because that's what they know the most about, but they haven't necessarily put in the 10,000 hours writing so there's a dissonance between how much they know about their profession and their ability to write about it. Right. But I think people are getting better because of open source platforms or open platforms like LinkedIn. They can write more and get practice and get those hours in and become, if not great writers, at least good writers. Yeah. So that the, the so the genre in general of business writing has, I think, improved in the past eight years. Well, let me push back on that a little bit because I think that there is it is not necessarily a question of getting in the hours and of uh, writing is important, but even more important is being authentic. Yes. And that is where I think that you separated from the pack very, or, or that you were ahead of the pack very early on. Someone else that was th that also was doing that at, at the same era was Sally Krawcheck. And she yes. wrote about getting fired. And the, this is a taboo. Most people, when you get fired, you're really embarrassed about it. You don't want to talk about it. It's a, it's a, it hurts. It, it's so painful to get to get fired. And Sally's been fired a couple times, and she's been very open and honest about it. And that allowed other people to come in and talk about it also. And so the, her comments filled up with people who were thanking her for saying this because it meant they could talk about it as well. I think I think anything you're ashamed about is good a good way to start an article. Yeah. Because then, because it's not like you're the only person this has ever happened to getting fired. Everybody's been fired. Right. So suddenly everyone's going to say, oh, this happened to me. It even happened to Sally Krawcheck. Exactly. You know, so so that's going to, uh, or, or, you know, I would write sometimes topical stuff. So my my, my best article on LinkedIn ever, I think, was um, this is why you should quit your job. <laughs> and I think I wrote about it in January of every single year for like three or four years in a row and it right always time. did well. Yeah. And then, but I would also write things like don't own a home, don't go to college. So things that border on professional life, personal life, personal finance, and so on. And, and that would encourage a lot of opinions. And I would talk about my own experience. But with, with an open platform, and maybe also this is just with the shorter attention spans of 
people these days with the rise of Instagram. You know, if you think about it, with Instagram, we've gone from hieroglyphics, you know, 5,000 years ago, all the way back to pictures. <laughs> and that gets the most, you know, attention. And so, and I, even on LinkedIn, my shorter, you know, you have articles, posts, video, and That's other right. media. Posts tend to get the most engagement and, and interaction and views and so on, as opposed to, let's say, articles. Yeah. Um, what would you suggest for me? Like, I, I still have my followers on LinkedIn. I still have, you know, I still post and stuff, but I don't speak, I don't see, you know. You're as, not getting those big numbers. The, yeah. Now that it's open, you know, those big numbers are much harder to get. Um, there's a couple things. One is the video is really doing incredibly well on LinkedIn and going back and, and it still follows the exact same trend, which is that the more authentic you are, the better. And so, um, if you, people who, who hold their, and, and I think this is probably a little bit different than Instagram, which is that when you see the videos of someone just holding their phone, you can kind of see part of their arm in the, in, in the video or it's kind of shaky or they're walking while they're shooting this video. Those tend to do the, those, either those do the best or the super produced ones do the best. But in this kind of uncanny valley in the middle where people are trying to mimic professional videos and they're not quite there, those don't do well. And I, I, think, lo I love yeah. that phrase uncanny valley because that refers to, uh, that's really comes from the virtual reality world where you're trying to create something real, but it's not quite there. <laughs> yeah. And so people have an, 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 an unconscious hate for it. Yeah. And I think that's right. When you see someone trying to make a TV show, but it's obviously not, it doesn't work. Exactly. So you want to go, so uh, so don't worry about production values. Let Maybe your face falls out of the frame half the time. It doesn't, it's fine. And I think it's especially true in the business and professional world where things are polished so often or, or senior leaders try to give this very polished image of themselves or of their company. And people see through it and they don't want it. Right, because it'll never be as polished as a $50 million TV yeah, show. Yeah, exactly, right. And they also don't want, you know, we we have, I've talked to, I'm not going to name names, but I've talked to executives who write or share on LinkedIn and they complain about how much views that they're getting on their on their stuff. And I look back and I'm like, Do, are you, are, are you, is this, a, did you even write this? Well, you know, our PR people wrote it and then I kind of signed off on it. And it's like, well, you can't, it has to come from you. People can sniff out in authenticity. Right. The audience is an x-ray machine. Yeah, exactly. And so for you, when you write, they know instantly this is coming from you. There is no doubt that you do not have a PR person writing your stuff. Um, that there is no committee that's signing off before you publish something. It is coming from you. And so the more authentic you can be, the more people, and this goes back to this idea of ask, of giving and getting help, is that people want to feel like they're getting advice or insights from the person that they've chosen to follow or to click on. And is there a, a time limit on videos on LinkedIn? Uh, yeah, I think it's 10 minutes. Okay, so that's not like 60 seconds or something. Yeah, exactly. No, this isn't like, this isn't, you know, six seconds. And then how do people, videos. like like with articles, people could search on words. How are people finding videos? You find them through topics that you follow, so hashtags you follow. So, so people, I can put hashtags on. Exactly, you should be putting hashtags mm -hmm. on everything. Um, hashtags are just a great way to organize the world. Even on articles, I should put hashtags. When you share an article, you put a hash. You share it, and then you then you write a post. And the post you say, "Hey, I just wrote this article about why now is the best time to quit a job." Hashtag, you know, new job. Hashtag. Uh, I see. It. You write the article, then you make a post about exactly. the article. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. So I what didn't I tell everyone that. is, after you after you're done writing, after you hit publish, you go from being a writer to a marketer. So now you right. got to put your marketer hat on and think, how am I going to get people to read it? And um, 
and everyone's time challenged and you've got this feed that is constant that is flying by with a lot of choices or you know you don't carry a phone anymore but you might remember the air, when when you did carry a phone yesterday 9 hours ago <laughs> yeah and there was candy crush and there were other games you, you know my kids play pokemon go all day and they want you know there's other things that you can do on your phone that are entertaining so you have to get in front of people and convince them that what you wrote or what you recorded is worth their time so you got to become a marketer and you got to you got to convince them hashtags are a good way to do it selling the story I mean, you you know this you, you you're a natural at it but for a lot of people, that becomes tough. They write, they finish the article, they write a really anodyne headline, you know, uh, future of work, and then they post it, and no one comes. Right. And they and and what I try to coach people on is, would you click on that if you saw it in your feed? If you saw someone that just said future of work, would you click on it? No. You we we're, we're inundated with future of work ideas. Like, tell them what it is. Be conversational. Like how I figured out how to manage my own career or what I'm going to be doing in 30 years or why you why you've picked the wrong path for 10 years from now or I was talking to someone yeah, right. recently, Mickey, yeah. by the way all those yeah. titles which are great and more specific titles in the future of work are personal yes, you said why exactly I. it's all about so it's, it's a, the so me it's, it's a story that, right. that is told story. first yeah which goes back to the very what we started talking this this podcast about um, at the very beginning it's you have to be able to tell your story and um, and even as when you're even when you leave writing mode and you go into marketing mode, you're still telling a story, and that's really essential. I mean, I would say if I'm a beginning, let's say I'm 24, I'm looking to do a new career, something that I'm passionate about. I would say take things I'm. I, here's how I would do it. I would take things I'm interested in and simply write about how I'm learning about them. So write an article like I don't know anything about. Uh, AI. Yeah. So here's the resources I'm all looking at. Here's the sites I'm looking at. Yeah. Here's what, the what companies that seem what interesting. I, you ask questions. What am I? Right. What do you? What, what do you turn to? Or here's what I think. What I love are when people write. Here's what I think I've learned about AI. Right. And that because that opens you up. It says like I'm at the beginning of this process. I'm still trying to figure this out. And what you'll find is that in the comments, people will start steering you in the right direction, or in the direction they think you should be going in. And right. so you give a little bit of expertise and you ask for a little bit of expertise. And then you then I'm sure there's many communities about AI on yeah, LinkedIn. Right. So I would join, join those communities. Yeah, exactly. I would participate. Maybe like you just suggested, I would do videos, posts, whatever. But I, I do think you can create, you'll start getting followers from that community. Um, you'll start making connections. You'll start coming up with, the more you learn, the more ideas you'll have about AI, which you could communicate to other people on LinkedIn. And I think gradually you could find your network. Everybody, every, nobody is self-made. Everyone needs a network. And for a professional network, I don't know where else I would go other than LinkedIn, really. I mean, Facebook a little bit, like there are communities about AI and so on, but it's still made up of your friends and friends of friends. Whereas right. on LinkedIn, you can find it's more it's more topic motivated than just connections of connections. Yeah, and one of the most popular, the most active groups on LinkedIn is a veterans group where veterans come in who are entering the workforce are asking questions about, um, they, they're, they're leaving the military and they're getting into the workforce and they ask questions about what they should be doing. You know, they were trained in a very certain way and they're getting, they're asking questions about jobs that they might be interested in and they're getting advice from people who have been out of the military for a few years and that are maybe somewhere in their network, maybe they're second degree connections, but these are people who have been through it through it in a little bit of time, or maybe they're changing careers, 
um, and they're giving this advice back on what they've learned. And that is, and you can see exactly that they were veterans. You have a, you know, you can see where they've worked. You can get a sense whether what's great is you click through to the profile as as a as a smart person. You don't just take the advice. You click through on the profile. You read everything that person has done, and you get a sense for how much you want to trust what that person's advice is. You know, you shouldn't trust everyone's advice. Um, but I think the combination of those two things together of the uh, of of the profile that tells you who this person is and what they've done and what skills they have and how they think about the world, you can combine those and know how much trust to put in it, how much is relevant to you, whether you want to follow it or not. And then maybe you want to connect with that person, meet them in real life. Maybe you want to hire them. You know, all these things build on, start building on themselves. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, again, just as a as a valuable resource, building up, you know, building these communities, gaining followers, which again, um, what's the purpose of gaining followers? Do you send to all, like, let's say someone has 20,000 followers up from 2000. Do you send to all their followers? Oh, you're, you're following so-and-so. They just have a new video out or how do you, how do you do that? Is there a benefit to gaining followers? There is a benefit, but you need followers to interact with your, um, with your content. So if you have, we'll show everything to your followers. The question is where in the feed it's going to show up. And if someone isn't, isn't hasn't shown to be a regular um, cons- a regular consumer of what you're posting, then they are sending us a signal that they don't want to see more of your of your content. It's not a perfect world, and there are constant decisions that have to be made on where you're ranking things. And um, but you got to use the signals that you have. So we can't if we just showed everyone everything their followers say all the time. Y- it'd be too much. It'd be too much. Um, and so we're all, that's what we talked about the relevance engineers and what they how, how they think about it. This is these are the kind of questions they're constantly wrestling with. So so still so so relevance and sharing obviously if if something gets shared a lot I'm I'm sure that goes up on your algorithm. Yeah, exactly. So and the other part is if you're talking about topical conversations, if you're talking about things that are in the news or that are big conversations that are trending on LinkedIn that that an editor can then feature you in in one of these trending storylines and the trending stories then you'll also then get a big boost in your followers and people following or people commenting right there. So we want to make sure that we are highlighting really topical things that people are concerned about today. So, and you could see what's trending yeah. on, just go to LinkedIn's front page or whatever. You could see when We have like tools in the back end also that tell us what's trending. We have ways of sensing what people are, um, what topics they're interested in today that they weren't interested in yesterday, what topics are trending. And we want to make sure that we're covering those really well. So, so one, one, one or two final questions, or one main final question. You know, you have videos on LinkedIn, and you have even people doing videos on a regular basis, almost like shows. Um, but I look at, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of like media and even television in a different way. Like you look at Uber. Uber is not a television channel, and yet if I go on my Uber app, I'll see Spike Lee created a TV series that I could just watch on my Uber app following around five Brooklyn drivers. So what makes that different than Netflix? Netflix was just simply a website with a large amount of traffic, so they started making TV shows. Uber is, is in a way, an app with a large amount of traffic, so they made a TV show. LinkedIn has an enormous amount of traffic. You could be every bit as successful as Netflix or C- or even more successful than like a CNBC and just start producing your own real yeah. TV shows. Is this like a, you could be the LinkedIn network. And then you know what? You could even do a deal with a set-top box and be on the television channel. Sure. 
We have uh, the LinkedIn Learning courses are are have an Apple TV app, so they're they they, they are already doing the over over uh, what's called um, over the top yeah. programming. I want to see LinkedIn right there yeah. next to Amazon. All right. So whereas whereas Apple is too too exactly. direction, yeah, yeah. you right. know, too what is it, whatever it's called. Well, Jeff Weiner, the CEO of LinkedIn, was at a conference at the Informations Conference, and he said he's not opposed to doing things like that. So we'll see. Yeah, I think any large any site with large amounts of traffic should essentially be on the set-top box yeah. or at least view view themselves as a potential Netflix. Um, and LinkedIn's perfect because you have so many people, such a huge audience, interested in a very specific thing, which is their work life, which That's is right. so important yeah. to people. This an opportunity to like basically be the TV network for that. Anyway, just an idea. I'm throwing I like out. it. Giving you a couple ideas. all kinds of ideas. You, you're giving great. me a couple ideas too. So... <laughs> So thanks very much. Your second time on the show, Dan Roth, uh, Editor-in-Chief of LinkedIn. Uh, Hope you come on again and you gave great advice about how people of all ages could and should use LinkedIn, which is one of my favorite social media networks. Thanks. Thank you. That was fun. That was great. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.